Woi woi, woi woi, woi woi. Then it then go on the radio again. Yo, if you wanna smoke free weed, go board yourself. You need to go plant a seed. Go board yourself, make your knowledge increase. Go board yourself, go board yourself. Hey, all right. Welcome to episode number 72 of Grow Bud Yourself. We have a great show in store for you guys today. Our special guest is Andrew D'Angelo, the co-founder of Harborside Dispensary in Oakland, as well as the California Cannabis Industry Association and the Last Prisoner Project. We have a grow segment where I'm going to be talking about dry sift hash, as well as answering listener grow questions, all brought to you by Excelsior Extracts, Sweet Leaf Nutrients, Rocket Seeds, and Organic Rev Growth Stimulant, episode number 72, coming at you. Hey, so if you're looking to grow healthier, faster growing plants and increase your yields, Organic Rev is the answer. Rev is safe to use from seed through harvest and its active ingredients are 100% naturally occurring. Rev is a growth stimulant, not a nutrient. Simply adding Rev to your current regimen can deliver dramatic results. And because it's not a nutrient, Rev can't burn your plants. Growers turn to Rev to increase fertilizer efficiency, improve their nutrient uptake and the root zone development, stimulate seed germination, reduce transplant shock, and more. On a personal note, I've been using Rev and it works great. My plants absolutely love it and they respond immediately by greening up and looking healthy and strong. And now, our listeners can receive 10% off their first order of Organic Rev with the promo code GBY10. That's good for 10% off your entire purchase at Organic Rev. So head to OrganicRev.com GBY10 and find out what Rev can do for your plants. All right, welcome back. And uh, as always, thank you to DJ Jacques and Winstrong for the tune. Hope you guys like it. It gets you in the mood uh, for growing some cannabis because that's what we're all about. And on that note, our advertiser, Organic Rev Growth Stimulant, is offering a free bottle promo for listeners of Grow Bud Yourself. If you just pay the $5 for shipping and handling, uh, you will get a four-ounce bottle of Organic Rev Growth Stimulant for free, which actually makes up to four gallons of Organic Growth Stimulant. Uh, so go to OrganicRev.com slash GBY10 and just click in the top right for your free bottle promo. You can try it out for free. It works with any nutrient regimen, so give it a try at OrganicRev.com slash GBY10. And here we are, episode 72 uh, 72 for me is an important year. It's the year I was born. No, uh, that yeah, is a, that's important. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's got, it's a special number for me. You know, that's, uh, my birth year, 72. I was born in, uh, actually in the Soviet union, uh, under communism. <laughs> Did you know uh, on July 4th, no less, Yeah. You know, so born on the 4th of the, July. Yeah. The communists it, did not love me. Yeah. Uh, I was a Yankee doodle, uh, Danko. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's the significance for me of 72. Uh, it was a good year, you know, I think in general. Though a lot of interesting music and uh, art uh, came out of it, and so did I. So there we have Solid it. Solid year. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I just got back from Boston Freedom Rally, uh, and boy, are my lungs tired. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, that's an oldie for you guys mm-hmm. on the uh, the Borscht Belt. Uh, but yeah, I mean, to recap, it was great. It was wonderful. I'm so glad I went. Uh, we got rid of a ton of Northeast Leaf magazines, uh, sold some some of my grow books, uh, met some some of the fans of the show, uh, some podcast listeners, handed out some stickers, and uh, gave a little speech too. It's up on my Facebook uh, if you guys want to check it out. Um, and had an amazing time. Saw a lot of old friends I hadn't seen before or hadn't seen in a long time, uh, met some new friends I hadn't seen before. <laughs> uh, and yeah, it was really awesome. And uh, I highly recommend it uh, as a wonderful event on sacred, hallowed ground, no less. I mean, the, it's right there on the Boston Common, right in the middle of town. And I've been going since I was a kid. Uh, it's a really wonderful event. So thanks to Mass Can and everyone over there for putting together an amazing Freedom Rally. Um, you know, there's always... Uh, pitfalls and things, especially they only had something like 36 days to put it together. Um, But it was uh, uplifting and amazing. And as I said in the speech, basically, it's a celebration and a protest. So celebrating how far we've come, uh, but protesting uh, some other things as well, uh, including the fact that there's still thousands of prisoners in jail uh, for nonviolent cannabis offenses and and much more. You know, we want to preserve our culture uh, the industry is fine, but we want to preserve the culture. So, and Massachusetts is an interesting place to see all that happening because they're, they've got, uh, you know, legal adult use, they've got medical use, um, they have home grow. So, you know, they're sort of a, a good, uh, bellwether to see, you know, what, what the future holds for the rest of the East coast in a lot of ways, New York and New Jersey and Connecticut and, everyone else so massachusetts has has cleared what two billion dollars since legal sales began just in 2018 yeah yeah two billion dollars and i mean you can imagine when new york and new jersey and connecticut are are legal we're going the east coast is going to be i mean if you're even if you just assume that two billion from each of those states uh you know that's eight billion right there and i think you know i think there might be more uh at that point uh especially if you you know you look at new york uh, population-wise and and de- population density of the city, but also uh, the size of the rest of the state and how many people are already going to Massachusetts from all these other states, uh, will they'll will then be spending it at in their home state. So uh, I think we're in for a wild ride uh, for legal cannabis, and I just think we need to uh, preserve uh, the culture of cannabis as well. And what's interesting and 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 heartening is that you know you can you can find good products at these dispensaries uh in massachusetts there i've seen amazing flour amazing concentrates amazing edibles and more so uh if you pick and choose and you know as mentioned uh vote with your pocketbook or your wallet you know frequent the places that have the quality products Uh, but it was great to be there and great to see uh that uh, the event and the culture is still alive and thriving and if anything you know, putting the feet to the fire of the industry to make sure they don't leave anybody behind and that they make sure that the, uh, the smaller businesses can compete with the bigger businesses because um, everybody has something to offer. And I know, you know, the products I want uh, from the people I want to buy it from, and, and that's, that's the ones I'm going to spend my money on. And I think that if that's what we do as a culture, we, we can keep it alive. I know it's not all about the amount of money brought in as you're saying it is largely about the culture but 
I just want to touch on this. It's incredible. Massachusetts is already very close to this, but they're projected to start clearing well over a billion dollars just per year in sales. So that's really stunning that they're they're bringing in that much money. And things are going well up in Maine, too. Um, they just set another record. I think it's they've set a record every month since sales began last October, but they brought in over $10 million in sales in August. So yeah, like you said, the Northeast is, is popping, and if Maine can do that, if Massachusetts can do that, just imagine what New York and New Jersey can do. It's going to be uh, it's going to be something to witness. Yeah, I can't wait. And uh, now you know the wheels are are grinding and and moving because uh, our new governor is really starting to put to put the uh, you know the commissions together to make it all happen. And um, I think you know by next year we'll see some serious progress. Indeed. And we're going to get into what's going on in New York a little bit more next week. There's been some developments with um, with cannabis uh, retail on tribal lands, but we wanted to, we have a really great interview, great cultivation segment. We didn't want to do news at all, but I saw this story and I just felt like, golly, we have to talk about this. I'm very confused. So let me just, uh, let me just tell you what's going on here. The FBI, which just this summer loosened its employment restrictions they have regarding cannabis. Essentially, they said that if you if you are applying to be an FBI agent, you just can't have consumed pot in the last year before you apply, which is ridiculous, but far more reasonable than a lot of these um, agencies. But then this story just came across, and the FBI clarified their employment restrictions, and now they're saying that anyone who applies to be an FBI agent can't have used marijuana more than 24 times since turning 18. So where did that number come from? Like, 24. if you turned 18 and you used it 24 times, you're fine. 25, you could never be an FBI agent. Interesting and very strange. Very strange. You have to pick a number, right? And there was... I'm sure some discussion amongst the agents in charge of this that, you know, uh, well, how many times can they smoke a year? You know, you're assuming that, you know, they're applying in their 20s or 30s, you know, from when they're 18 and let's say they're applying at 24, that gives them six years. If they're smoking, you know, eight times a year, they can't, they're not FBI material. (laughs) They just can't. But if it's, you know, three times a year, I mean, everybody has a puff now and then yeah that's that's (laughs) you know that's the difference between like having a puff now and then once you've had a few glasses of wine at a party because you know maybe david crosby or somebody passes it to you so you feel feel like you kind of have to you know you don't want to be the the fbi agent narc in the room you know what i mean you you take a puff uh but you're not a pothead i mean you're not you're not smoking once a month you know that's outrageous outrageous Well, the actual rule from the FBI uh, jobs site states candidates that have used marijuana or any of its various forms, e.g. cannabis, hashish, hash oil, or THC synthetic or natural in any location, domestic or foreign, regardless of the legality of that location of use more than 24 times after turning 18 years old, is a disqualifier for FBI employment. So Mm. don't hit it that 25th time or you'll never be on the X-Files. Right, it's like the old the old thing about how if you take a certain am- amount of hits of acid, you're insane. Right, you're like yeah. you're like technically insane. <laughs> Just total gibberish and nonsense. I recommend the FBI only hire people who smoke cannabis daily, 
and also people who take hallucinogens because some of these cases, you know, they need, uh, they need you thinking outside the box. You know what I mean? I think they need you to, yeah, you need to really, uh, dive deeply into the psyche of, you know, whoever it is that you're, you know, I'm just thinking from the, from like a, you know, silence of the lambs kind of perspective. I mean, you, you know, you, you want to, do you want to, you know, kind of get into the mind of the Charles Manson guy or whatever, you know, like take some of the drugs he's taken and, 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 you know, maybe that'll help. Just but, not more than two dozen times. So well, if we look at I mean, the, the thing is, if you do smoke that much, you're probably less likely to want to be an FBI agent <laughs> also. So I think it's kind of like a two way street. If you, uh, if you have smoked a bunch and maybe taken some hallucinogens, like the last thing in the world would you would think of would be to join, you know, some type of federal uh, law enforcement agency. So maybe this isn't completely arbitrary. Maybe they really did a bunch of research and they found this is the number. It's 24. But right, if you look the at their federal... The 25th time you smoke, you have that revelation. You're like, hmm, you know that whole plan I had to join the FBI? <laughs> That's messed up, man. I think I'm just going to go follow the dead around. I'm going to art school. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you uh, have it, If you look it, at man. the uh, other federal agencies, the um, uh, service members in the U.S. are not allowed to even use CBD. Uh, the Air Force issued a notice back in 2019 that prohibited any of their members from using CBD even. Uh, the Navy also uh, bans CBD use, and the Coast Guard uh, says sailors can't use cannabis or CBD or even visit uh, state legal dispensaries. So I guess if you look at that, the FBI is actually a little bit liberal. Uh, <laughs> it's just this 24 number really caught me off guard. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you'd think they would allow CBD because, like, there's a lot of chafing, you know, when you're hot and sweaty and marching around and stuff and or if you're on Chafing. a on a ship for a long period of time maybe not getting a shower all every yeah chafing you know so you need some cbd creams and <laughs> well anyway we just had to bring that up if, if anyone has a theory about why 24 is the magic number for the fbi please write us i think it'll help me sleep a little better at night if you have a good theory uh, you can get us at info at growbudyourself.com that's a little bit of a look at what's going on in the world of cannabis, but we have a really, really great interview for you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we uh, have our friend Andrew D'Angelo, who, uh, yeah, he's been a, an ambassador for the cannabis leaf uh, and the plant for many years uh, with hemp and cannabis and Harborside and the CCIA and the Last Prisoner Project and uh, now doing consulting. Uh, but we wanted to talk to him about, uh, you know, his whole uh, career, you know, from legacy to legal and from the underground into the light. And uh, also the brother of Steve D'Angelo, as people know, uh, also from uh, Harborside and, and Last Prisoner Project. So, yeah, we'll be back after these messages uh, with our friend Andrew D'Angelo. If you're ready to start your own home grow, you're going to need some seeds. Fortunately, our sponsor Rocket Seeds has you covered. You can find seeds for hundreds of high-quality cannabis varieties at rocketseeds.com, including many of our strains of the Fortnite. Rocket Seeds boasts an incredible inventory of quality-tested cannabis seeds. 
Whether you're looking for feminized, autoflowering, regular, CBD, or fast version seeds, Rocket Seeds has it all. Plus, Rocket Seeds ships internationally and discreetly and provides excellent customer service. And as a special promotion just for our listeners, you can use the code GBY10 to get 10% off your order at Rocket Seeds. So follow at Rocket Seeds on Instagram. Remember to tell them Danny sent you. And check out rocketseeds.com today and get growing. All right, welcome back. And we have a great guest for you guys this week. Uh, he is our friend Andrew D'Angelo, the co-founder of uh, Harborside Dispensary, uh, California Cannabis Industry Association, uh, Last Prisoner Project, and uh, an advisor and consultant in the cannabis industry uh, for many, many years. Uh, Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. It's my pleasure to be with you today. Absolutely. Truly appreciate uh, you taking your time. Uh, now, for people... Uh, who may not be familiar, uh, or maybe they're more familiar with your brother, Steve, uh, who, you know, I guess you've been a little more behind the scenes over the years, but uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your beginnings in cannabis. Sure. Well, most of your listeners probably know my brother, Steve D'Angelo, really well. Steve's 10 years older than me. And so Steve was an excellent guide and teacher to sort of bring me into cannabis first as a consumer but then pretty quickly about two days after my first joint uh, i started selling weed with my bro and this was 1980s and um we've been on this journey together ever since as you mentioned i've i've spent most of those years managing my brother's visions and his businesses um, but now that the Harborside experience is behind us and we have our nonprofit Last Prisoner Project, we're cutting some solo albums now. And so the world is seeing a little bit more of me. Uh, and I'm having a great time sort of emerging from Steve's shadow a little bit and being able to share everything I've learned over the decades um, with everybody else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And actually, we we both go back also to the uh, the hemp industry of the mid to late '90s as well. You guys with uh, Ecolution and myself with Headcase Hemp Hats. And at the time, there were very few uh, legal cannabis related businesses <laughs> at all uh, to be involved with. And you guys had also made the uh, the first hundred percent hemp denim jeans uh, since Levi Strauss made them way back in the day. Uh, but you guys had an, uh, an amazing company uh, at Ecolution, and you were basically kind of uh, involved in that, but also uh, the model <laughs> for a lot of the advertising as well, I remember. Yeah, in those days, I just emerged from acting school, and I was a lot younger than I am now. And so I was able to be a model for Ecolution and sort of help with the marketing and the story of Ecolution and go to all the trade shows all of them in Europe in those days. <laughs> um, and it was really, it was our first legal cannabis company, just like I'm sure Headset was maybe your first legal uh, cannabis company. Love those hats. Um, we, I believe we, we, we both sold each other stuff a little yeah. bit. And it was a great learning experience. The world wasn't ready for <laughs> either one of our companies, I don't think, at that moment in time. And when 
it became clear the Chinese were going to just destroy the hemp market. We didn't want to do business in China. So that that's when we decided to exit that company. But but making those jeans and making those products, I still have them. They're still in great shape. And there, there's nothing like 100% hemp. This The shirt I'm wearing is hemp, actually. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because back then, you know, we viewed it as uh, simply, you know, for fiber, you know, for fabric and for seed. Uh, some, a lot of the Canadian companies were growing for uh, for seed as well. But we never envisioned anything about, you know, CBD or like extracting oil from the hemp plant or any of the things that have are, are now, you know, in, in, in the most popular part of the, that sector. Um, so that's interesting as well, but you've also, you were involved in, uh, a number of initiatives, uh, to legalize cannabis medically, and then eventually, uh, adult use of cannabis as well. Tell me a little bit about that effort. Well, when you're in the weed business and everything's illegal, it's a scary life. (laughs) You're running and hiding and getting chased and your friends are getting busted and your family's getting busted. And just when you made a little bit of money, somebody gets busted and you have to take the money out and help them with their legal case and get them out of jail and take care of their families and so forth. So it was enormously frustrating. We also, Steve's been trying to legalize weed since he was a young teenager, and I was just a toddler at that time. So I grew up in that activism, in that in that environment of activism. And so when Dennis Perone and that crew out in California, you may remember there's a little bit of split in the cannabis community in, the, in those late 80s, early 90s between do we go with industrial hemp or do we go with medical cannabis? And my brother and I chose industrial hemp. And we were wrong. (laughs) (laughs) They called it the rope versus the dope. Yeah. And and I remember my brother wrote a a famous article. I I don't know if High Times published it or not, but it was the rope is the dope was the name of it. And um, so, you know, Dennis was right in terms of what the world was ready for. And when we saw the success he was having, we supported him financially, of course. And I was also in San Francisco at that time in those early initiative efforts. So I helped him collect signatures. And for a short period of time, I lived in his house. And so that was sort of my first grassroots effort was 215. We called it Prop 215 in California, 1996. When that won, light bulbs went off on everybody uh, in the industry and in the community. And we're like, wow, maybe we can get this done in other places besides California and Washington, DC, our hometown had a ballot initiative process. So we collected signatures and we got medical cannabis on the ballot in DC. It took us more than one time to win the vote, mainly because the city refused to count the votes and then the feds refused to, fund the law for a long time in D.C., and that's a whole complicated thing about how the feds have control over D.C. We don't need to get into that now. But um, so, yeah, those two efforts were the big ones. And then, unfortunately, uh, the two adult use legalization efforts in California, the first one failed. The second one succeeded. We supported both of those efforts. And I'm, you know, we were wrong again in terms of Prop 64 and the adult use framework in California was totally wrong. And 
We were afraid if that initiative lost that Trump and Sessions, if they had won the election, it was the same year that they were running, you know, and we were afraid everyone would get busted if Prop 64 lost, just like when Prop 19 lost in 2010, hundreds of dispensaries were busted. Hundreds of grows were busted in California by the feds. So we knew the framework was not very good for adult use in California, and but we were more afraid of getting busted and our brothers and sisters getting busted in California. So we reluctantly supported that law. We didn't say we were reluctantly supporting it at the time. We were enthusiastically supporting it. But um, in hindsight, I, I probably would have perhaps not supported that as much. It's been a very painful experience for us in California. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It definitely complicated the situation. Uh, but in 2006, uh, you guys uh, started Harborside, which uh, I was lucky enough to visit a few times and and, and uh, really became the model for other dispensaries. Tell me a little bit about that and how uh, what how that vision uh, for Harborside was was born and, and actually created. Absolutely. Well, after we legalized medical in California in 1996, the state legislature refused to regulate the program and they basically just kicked it to the locals. Most of the locals also did not regulate the program, and many locals just busted people. They'd ban it, and then they'd bust people who tried to open dispensaries. There were certain liberal enclaves like San Francisco and Oakland that didn't bust people, but they had too many dispensaries. They were overrun. But I think at one time, Oakland had 40 or 50 dispensaries in a town that 400,000 people in, 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 19, in, you know, whatever it was, 2003, 2002. So the city decided they were going to regulate and they were the first city on earth to regulate and issue licenses for cannabis dispensaries, medical cannabis dispensaries. And my brother, you know, my brother's a visionary, so smart. He's been doing this so long. He said, that's our opportunity, bro. We got to go for one of these licenses. My brother had gotten busted five years before, pretty brutal bust that bankrupted all of us, my my parents included. And so we need to get legal. <laughs> so we we my brother had a vision. We went to all the dispensaries that were open at that time. And at that time, there were two ki- kinds of dispensaries. One was the one I call with the bulletproof glass. <laughs> where you bought your weed through the bulletproof glass and you had guys with guns opening the door for you. And um, it was a little bit scary, actually, unless you were a hardcore stoner and then you just tolerated it and you dealt with it. A lot of that weed was going out the back door, most likely. And then the other kind of dispensary were were well-intentioned activists that were opening dispensaries like the Berkeley Patients Group. And they were doing a better job than the bulletproof glass dispensaries were, but, but, but activists don't know how to run businesses very well. And my brother and I had been both activists and business people our whole lives. So, so we, my brother thought of this vision that we would run Harborside as a nonprofit that was mandated by the attorney general at that time in California, governor Jerry, who became governor, Jerry Brown. And and we saw it as an opportunity to create a community center 
that also sold medical cannabis. So we had programs, we had free classes that people could take, health care, like Reiki and yoga and Chinese herbs and Chinese medicine, all those. We had about a dozen different free medical, we had a free medical clinic basically for the community. And we also gave away free weed to people that were poor. We called it a care package program. And then we also had the Patient Activist Resource Center, which we gave people a voucher for one gram of free weed if you wrote a letter to a cannabis prisoner. And, and that was sort of the genesis of Last Prisoner Project in, in many ways, sort of an unconscious genesis of Last Prisoner Project was because after a few years of writing literally thousands of letters to prisoners, some of these prisoners would get out and they would come to us and they would just thank us. And, 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 and some of them even ended up working for us. So that was a unique vision that, that had not been presented at that time. There, there, there were care package programs that people had done and, and, and there were some other things like that. But we, we kind of put all the best stuff that the activist dispensaries were doing combined with our own knowledge of just how to sell weed in a really dynamic way. And so we created Harborside and, and, and you, you may, you were there. So it was this giant, <laughs> pretty big building. It was a 4,000 square foot floor of the dispensary. At that time, the biggest dispensary in the world was maybe 1,500 square feet or 1,000 square feet. People thought we were batshit crazy. Um, <laughs> it had its own we were, parking lot. <laughs> yeah. And this giant parking lot and, 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 you know, people from the other dispensaries that we were trying to build community with, they just thought we were crazy. They're like, you're, you're never going to be able to fill this place up. What are you doing? You don't even have on-site consumption. <laughs> so, um, but people really responded to the model and, and people came and we were able to fill up the space. And within a year or two, we were seeing almost a thousand patients a day were, were coming through Harborside and, and, and hundreds of people a day were accessing our programs that I just described. And, and it, it just, it was such a wonderful community building exercise. I, I, we've, it really created because we were out in the open, we weren't hiding anymore. So it was, it was previously to Harborside, all the communities we had built were sort of underground communities you know, whether it's the Rainbow Gathering or Burning Man or, or what, all these different groups that we plugged into, you know, most mainstream people don't know anything about them. And whereas Harborside was right in the city of Oakland, it was getting a lot of media attention. My brother, of course, enjoyed that a, quite a bit and, and told, told the story, right? He told the story loudly, proudly and widely. And so we got a lot of attention. And, and, and I think, you know, until the adult use program really displaced, you know, a lot of what we were trying to do with Harborside, um, we really successfully created a very unique community center. And I hope that, you know, as we figure out legalization over the course of the next five or 10 years, New York, for example, has a much better framework or, or at least the outlines of a much better framework <laughs> on paper. Let's yeah, see how they paper, actually yeah. implement it. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, obviously publicity and a lot of people were probably introduced to you guys 
and what you were doing at Harborside through Weed Wars, a short-lived show on Discovery Channel with a ton of viewers. And I don't think that, you know, that escaped the the uh, eyes of the federal government, which basically came after Harborside, I think, in an attempt to intimidate all, all the other dispensaries as well. I mean, you guys were the example that they wanted to set. But tell me a little bit about that. They, they really uh, came after Harborside in civil forfeiture. So basically going after the financial uh, backbone of the company. Right. Well, we did Weed Wars in the winter of 2011. So it aired over the course of December and January in 2011, early 2012. They came after us five months later, six months later. So I think that program really pissed off a lot of the law enforcement people in the federal government. We also gave children with epilepsy cannabis tincture on that show, which we were the first group to do that. And um, we were nervous to do that on national television. But we also thought, well, gosh, this is really important because these kids are suffering. And, And this particular child, their seizures went down 90%. So we decided to tell that story. So yes, there was a forfeiture action taken not only against us, but a lot of dispensaries um, during those years. Because as I mentioned earlier, Prop 19, the first adult use initiative in California failed in 2010. And the feds came after people. And the feds knew that it was going to be hard for them to bust people, go in front of a jury and get a conviction. No jury in the Bay Area or many parts of California are going to convict people (laughs) that have a medical cannabis dispensary. And so they did forfeiture actions. So a forfeiture action is when the government goes after the property that they believe is engaged in criminal activity. So they basically go after the landlord and they, they put the squeeze on the landlord and they say, if you don't evict these people, we will destroy your life. So our landlord tried to evict us, but we had written the lease in such a way. The lease basically said, hey, we're violating federal law. You got to be okay with that. And when we got into rent court, landlord court in California, that's a civil procedure, not a criminal procedure. The judge in the California court said, but the lease says there, <laughs> the lease says that they're violating federal law. You sign the lease. They're not in breach of the lease. You can't evict them. So then when we won that case, it really set a precedent and basically made it almost impossible for the feds to do forfeiture actions on anybody else in the industry that was licensed by the state or the town that they or the, the jurisdiction they were in. And that really helped um, lower how many busts and lives were being destroyed by the federal government at that time. We still lost our 280E case. So that's a tax case. Uh, IRS 280E, we fought that as well. But that case we lost. And um, unfortunately, it looks like, you know, we're going to have to pay (laughs) Harborside, which I'm not affiliated with anymore. But Harborside's going to have to pay, I don't know many millions of dollars to the IRS for, for 280E. Right. Well, you mentioned that you guys had sort of stepped away uh, from Harborside and, and now they've gone public as well. 
Uh, but tell me about uh, the last prisoner project and and uh, how that was started and the purpose of it and how people can can also participate as uh, contributors or otherwise. Yeah, last prisoner project. Steve and I got a little bit disgusted with what happened with Harborside and the corporatization of the movement and the industry. And we saw a lot of people that already had a lot of privilege and wealth coming into the industry and gaining more privilege and wealth. (laughs) And there were a lot of people in prison still for cannabis, including friends of ours. So my brother hatched the vision for Last Prisoner Project about three years ago. He was still in Harborside. I was sort of wiggling my way out of Harborside at that time. And... I wanted to do something that was not transactional. I had been spending almost 15 years building this company. It became very transactional with the adult use framework. We had to go public to deal with that 280E case. That was really the only way we could deal with it. And so we had to go public, even though our company wasn't really ready to go public. None of those cannabis companies on those markets were ready to go public. And that's why they've they've all taken a bath up there. But but last prisoner project, I wanted to do something that helped the people that need help the most in our community, and and that's people that are locked up in prison. And so there's forty thousand. Our best count at last prison project, there's about forty thousand people still locked up for weed. Most of them black, brown, and immigrants and poor people. None of these people should be locked up for weed. So. It took us a couple of years to sort of raise enough money and build a good enough team and get enough publicity to start getting people out of prison. And in the last 18 months, we've gotten the longest serving nonviolent cannabis prisoner, Richard DeLisi, out of prison in Florida. We got Michael Thompson out of prison after 26 years, I believe he was locked up for in Michigan. And um, and many others now. Corvain Cooper was another one that was released. And we have many more to go. But And the way people can help is you go to our website, lastpersonproject.org. There's a tab called Get Involved or Get Active. And you can donate, of course. And most of our donations are small, by the way. And you can also write a letter to prisoners. So we have prisoners and addresses and names and you can write letters to prisoners, sort of, again, extension of that first program we had at Harborside. I'm a pen pal with prisoners, and it's a really gratifying way to help because, especially during COVID, all these folks were locked down. They couldn't get visitors, and it was a terrible experience, and still is a terrible experience for prisoners during COVID. So writing letters was a real lifeline. So you can do that. Uh, you can also volunteer for our events and and some of our work that we do with expungement and and that sort of thing. And you can also, if you work for a cannabis company, encourage them to be part part of our corporate partner program. We have two of them. One's called Rolled Up for Freedom, and that's for dispensaries. And it's basically you put your change from your weed purchase into a little bucket and we collect it. You can also do it electronically. And then we have um, Partners for Freedom where um, cultivators and manufacturers, we give 
our partners a little logo to put on their packaging and so their community knows and their customers know that they're supporters of Last Prisoner Project. <clears throat> and we celebrate them on our website and um, galas and in other ways on our social media. We celebrate all of our, all of our partners that are involved in that. And we, we mo- a lot of our funding also comes from, from those two programs. Uh, and, um, you know, there's, there's, there's one company in particular, Ascend, that has rolled up for freedom, and they've raised almost a million dollars for us um, with that program because they're a multi-state operator and we're, we're all over all their stores. And they've trained their staff to basically ask every single customer if they'd like to donate to us. So... It's been a, a great partnership with Ascend, and we're very grateful to all of our corporate partners. We have many of them, too many for me to mention now, but they're all on the website, and you can, <laughs> you can yeah. check them out. Yeah. From what I understand, you guys also help with re-entry once the prisoners are released, uh, just because that's that's got to be tough to, to be locked up for 25 years for a nonviolent cannabis offense, and then just be released into the world where cannabis is legal, but maybe because you have a felony in some states, you can't work in the industry. And uh, yeah, so you guys help a little bit with that as well. Right. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. We, we, we get people out of prison, we expunge their records, and then we help them with reentry. The way we help with reentry is we give people money. And what you need the most is a house. You need some transportation to get to a job. You need schooling for your kids. You need clothing. So we, we, we make direct donations to folks, and the community has really helped. Michael Thompson's a great example. Sean King did a fundraiser for Michael Thompson, and I think in less than 24 hours, they raised enough money for him to buy a house. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Now, tell me about your you're now uh, doing consulting and strategic advising. Uh, tell me about sort of the mission of your consulting business and also what type of clients you're looking for. Uh, to consult for? Well, thanks for asking. Yes. Well, now that Harborside's behind me and Last Prisoner Project has a wonderful team in place, I, I, I have to make a living and sort of support all the Last Prisoner Project myself. So I do that with consulting. And, and what I do well as a consultant is I help people build their business once they have the license. Um, I'm, I'm not I don't fill out license applications. I refer people to others that do that. Um, but once you have your license, you have to figure out how to build your business. So that's what I help people with. And I, I tend to get them from licensing to opening the doors of their business and beginning revenue generation. Um, and then I usually stick around after that to make sure that everything's going according to plan. Uh, and you know, that's, that's what I do. I, 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 I learned a lot, right? You learn a lot over the decades. And I've, I've been in the hemp industry, and I've been in the medical cannabis industry, and I've been in the adult use cannabis industry, and I've taken a company in public, and I sold a lot of weed underground. So all those experience taught me how to build things, particularly teams and people, which is probably my greatest strength. So I help my clients put their teams together. I help my clients um, put their fundraising materials together. And then once they raise funds, we, we deploy those funds and we, we build the business. So I, I mainly get hired to do either vertically integrated companies or 
the dispensary portion of um, the vision that the founders have for, for their vertically integrated company. And I'm having a great time doing it. It's really wonderful to help other entrepreneurs and give them all of the knowledge and experience that I've had. And I've seen it all and I've made all the mistakes. <laughs> um, more importantly, probably I've made all the mistakes that, that one can make. So I think that people are really looking for experience in a consultant. There's a lot of consultants out there who, you know, came from other industries and haven't really built a cannabis company before. And that's not me. So, um, and, and sometimes you need experts from other industries to help you. You need finance, you need um, retail sometimes, you know, creative directors and administrators and people like that. And so I help gather that, all those groups, all those team members together, because I have a vast network of people that I'm in relationship with over the decades. And, and that Rolodex is just tremendous. And, and so I have sort of an affiliation of other consultants that I use to help build the businesses for, for my clients. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, if people want to find out more information, they can go to andrewdangelo.com. Uh, follow Andrew on Twitter and Instagram at Andrew underscore D'Angelo. Uh, check out lastprisonerproject.org. Please uh, support that and do what you can. There's, um, as mentioned, even the smallest donation really goes a long way to help. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with making money in cannabis, but we can't leave our prisoners behind. Uh, they have to come up and, and be free. So thank you uh, for that. And if you want to find out about consulting, you know, you can uh, contact Andrew at andrewdangelo.com. Uh, so thank you so much, Andrew, for being on the show and for being such a, a, a great ambassador for the plant. Thanks for having me. We will be back after these messages with more Grow Bud Yourself. If you're a grower or you're thinking about starting your first crop, then you need to know about Sweet Leaf Plant Nutrients. Sweet Leaf has an incredible line of organic fertilizers and, of course, their legacy line that includes organic and some synthetic fertilizers. So check them out at sweetleaf.com. That's S-U-I-T-E-L-E-A-F.com. The code DANKO15 gets you 15% off everything at Sweet Leaf. That's 15% off their signature line of nutrients as well as essentials like complete indoor hydroponic grow tent kits and grow lights, plus awesome apparel, backpacks, and much more. If you join our Patreon, you'll get access to additional codes worth 20 and even 25% off. All Patreon supporters also receive free Sweetleaf nutrients just for signing up. Sweetleaf provides all the tools necessary for the modern gardener. Check them out at sweetleaf.com and remember the code DANKO15. All right, welcome back. We should mention that our friends at Sweet Leaf Nutrients uh, have a special program going on this month. Uh, exclusive product drop for Grow Bud Yourself podcast members only. You get a free 32-ounce bottle of uh, their newest organic liquid fertilizer product, the Crazy K005, uh, before anyone else. So if you sign up right now as a Big Bud 
or a Heady Chief level supporter on our Patreon site, uh, which is patreon.com slash Danny Danko, uh, you will get a free 32-ounce quart-sized bottle of that crazy K005. And please note that uh, renewing members will also receive that bottle as well. And that is a potassium booster that's designed specifically for late-stage uh, indoor gardening systems. So uh, that's exciting. And thank you to them for that uh, promo. And thank you so much to Andrew D'Angelo. Uh, very interesting interview with him. And uh, hope you guys learned something. Yes. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, we appreciate the time. And uh, yes, we are now in the cultivation section of this show. And our listeners know that each and every week, Mr. Danko likes to give a tip that's going to help you become a better cultivator. So what would you like to discuss this week? Yes. So this week, I actually want to talk a little bit about hash and specifically dry sift hash. Um, You know, hashish has been around, obviously, for many, many years. And this is one of the oldest ways uh, to make it. Uh, And uh, there's several things that you can do with sugar leaves. You can do this with buds. uh, But one of the simplest things you can do is to make dry sift. It's easy to make. Uh, If made properly, it'll melt well. Uh, It tastes really amazing, but it's important to keep it free of uh, different impurities. You really just want the gland heads. Um, Now, the simplest way to achieve this is uh, sift dried branches of mature female plants over silkscreen. Specific sizes of silkscreen will catch different uh, gland head sizes uh, and also sift out some of the uh, particulates you don't want in there. Then you gather and press together that like fine powder that you get, uh, the stuff that falls through uh, with some slight heat and pressure. And basically that's the traditional version of hash that you would get, um, you know, for thousands of years in in the Middle East or in Asia. Um, The thing to remember is that different strains have also different sized trichome heads, uh, even when harvested at different times. So that's also important, there's a bit of trial and error to find the size of silkscreen uh, that's best to, for just removing just that gland heads. Um, because the more gland stalks uh, and plant material that falls through the, through the screen, uh, the less likely your hash will be to melt. There's just going to be contaminants there. Uh, and the potency will be lower as well. Um, so the cool thing about dry sift, it requires minimal equipment, um, very little processing basically. I actually, I have a bubble box uh, that I purchased uh, through Fresh Headies, our friend uh, Bubble Man, who we got to have on the show sometime soon, uh, Mark from Canada. He is a pioneer of dry sift and has created some really cool materials, as well as uh, Mila and others uh, who've made this, this type of stuff for making ice water extraction or bubble hash. Uh, but dry sift doesn't have the ice element to it, no water to pull out or anything it's basically just gland heads pressed together that's ultimately what you're looking for um and so i use the bubble box at home i roll joints on it i keep you know i store whatever buds i have um that i'm about to smoke i'll put them on there and then uh grind it up and basically uh just roll my joints right there over the um the screen and over time it basically just you know collects hash underneath that screen uh, that I can scrape up and press if I'd like, or just uh, put it into a joint if I'd like. I prefer to sort of heat it and press it. I think um, it adds a certain element to it. Uh, some people obviously make rosin by, by actually taking that dry dry sift and pressing it 
with slight heat and pressure, but tons of pressure, basically, uh, with a press, and squeeze out the essential oil of those glands, and that's how they make uh, rosin, uh, and which is an amazing product, very dabbable and incredible. Um, but we're right now just talking about the sifting process, just to get to the dry sift. There's no solvents used. Uh, there's not even water, which some people call the universal solvent, obviously. Um, but you know, when you use water, the issue is you've got to get that water out uh, immediately, and um, the hash can get moldy. And so there's different you know, pros and cons, but dry sift is really the oldest uh, thing, and the key is just getting gland heads. So um, the advantages and disadvantages are there, uh, but uh, you know, sometimes people press buds for rosin, but you're not really going to get a lot of dabs by pressing flowers. You're going to, the, the way to get high quality rosin is to use dry sift uh, in the press. Um, and you're going to need basically screens. Uh, that's really what, uh, what the important thing is. And the best thing to do is uh, either purchase them from an existing supplier, as mentioned, uh, Mila, um, Bubble Man, and others have them out there. Uh, if you'd like to make your own, you can create a wooden frame and, and get yourself um, screens themselves. It's definitely cheaper to do it yourself, uh, but you should probably do some research to figure out exactly how to do that. Um, you want those screens to be food grade nylon. Uh, they're measured in LPI rather than microns. Uh, LPI are lines per inch. Um, both are indicators of the size of the pores, but uh, um, LPI is definitely more, uh, I guess, accurate than micron. But either way, um, you can find conversions for LPI to microns as well out there. Um, and basically, you know, you just need a plastic card of some kind. Uh, any kind of card will do, but not something you're going to use in machines. And you're going to basically just scrape the card across the screen um, and the different gland sizes, gland heads, gland stalks, uh, will fall through certain screens and will be caught on other screens. And that's how you get to just the gland heads. And it does take a certain amount of, uh, of scraping and, and, and trial and error to get it right. Uh, some people use dry ice. Uh, I'm not a big fan of that. I don't recommend it. Um, I think you can increase the amount of contaminants by using dry ice. So I think um, just a basic scraping back and forth over proper sized screens will get you uh, the material that you're looking for. And you'd want to scrape lightly. You don't want to push anything through. You don't want to aggressively scrape because you're going to push you know, either plant material or uh, anything else that's undesirable through there. And that's, uh, you know, that's going to make end up with a non-dabbable product. It's going to not bubble. Uh, and if it doesn't bubble, like, like Bubble Man says, it's not worth the trouble. Uh, you really want that. So, and remember to use parchment paper as well to collect it. You don't want to just be um, scraping it off of, you know, a floor or any kind of table surface or something Um and, you know, the last thing I would say is about storage. Uh, I would say keep dry sift in a sealed glass jar in a cool, dark, and very dry space. Uh, it's ready to go, basically, at that point. You can press it uh, for rosin. You can just use your fingers or your, your hand um, to press it between your fingers and, and warm it up and make a piece of hash out of it. 
Um, that's, you know, ultimately how you would get uh, what Frenchie calls the, uh, you know, the temple ball style. And he's got a whole system with heating up the, uh, the roller or a bottle of wine, like an, uh, an empty bottle of wine warmed up a little bit and using that as a roller to sort of press that hash. But really it's just warmth and pressure. Uh, we'll turn that into a nice soft ball of hash uh, that can be aged, uh, which is another cool thing, or just, like I said, stored in a cool, dark, dry place in a sealed glass jar, just like you would with flour. And uh, there's a lot more that you can learn about dry sift and turning it into rosin, uh, but it's really going to take just making it and experimenting. And you can just sprinkle it into joints, too. That's another thing that's uh, that I love to do. Uh, or when you roll it, you can roll it into kind of a snake and put that down the middle of a joint. That's also very fun. Um, or smoke it traditional style in a chillum or a hookah. Uh, but dry sift is the oldest tech uh, when it comes to concentrating cannabis. And I think uh, one of the best techs as well, because it really requires nothing more than a screen and some energy. A screen and some energy. I like it. All right. And now... Uh, it is time to take some questions from our listeners. Uh, if you have a question that you would like answered on the show, get in touch with us. Uh, you could email us. That is info at growbudyourself.com. What do you say we uh, we hop right in? Let's do it. All right. Uh, so this first one comes from Patreon. And uh, people might remember a couple episodes back, one Josh Ganja Jesus Hurst uh, wrote us about nicknames. He wanted to know what nicknames we thought were, were uh, good in the cannabis space. So uh, Adam kind of followed up on that, and he writes, uh, I have a fun nickname. I grow my own all organic. When I harvest, I separate it into A and B grade. I keep the A grade for myself and loved ones, but walking the city and toking is very therapeutic for me. So I take my B grade buds roll joints and hand them out to the guys I see that are currently homeless. I can't fix their situation, but maybe I could give them a good night's sleep. They call me Johnny Appleweed. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Yeah, Johnny <laughs> like Appleweed. It. And, you know, it seems like a positive thing, you know, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you know, I think as long, as long as you pick and choose, you know, there's probably people that are out there that may not benefit from uh, cannabis uh, due to, you know, schizophrenia or a mental illness of some type, but plenty of people who would, and as a substitute for other, uh, more harmful vices, obviously, uh, you know, cannabis can bring them around and I've seen it happen. Uh, so I think that's great. And uh, I love the nickname Johnny Appleweed. So keep up the great work and, uh, thanks for supporting us on Patreon as well. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you, uh, Adam. Very cool. Uh, let's move on. Back to our email. This one comes from Dabs R Us for twenty. That's not bad either. <laughs> yeah, that's a good nickname. Speaking of good nicknames, Dabs R Us for twenty. Yeah. Awesome. So Dabs R Us for twenty. He writes a question for you guys on fungus gnats. It's my first time growing in cocoa, and I uh, started to notice gnats flying around. I bought some yellow traps, and it's working to trap them, but how can I kill the larvae in cocoa? I stopped top feeding, and I'm just bottom feeding now. So, interesting, the fungus gnats are upon us. What would you say here to Dabs R Us 420? Yeah, um, yeah, uh, fungus gnats are very annoying. Um, for people that don't know, they're tiny, tiny little black flies basically they look like flies 
uh, and they, they float around in the air. They're almost impossible to catch in the air. They kind of float away from you as you try to snatch them. Um, the problem is their larvae actually feed on plant roots as well. They cause damage to the plant. If you leave them unchecked, they can damage it. They're not as bad as spider mites or white flies or a lot of other things that can happen to your plants, uh, thrips and aphids and stuff. They're kind of less, I would say, harmful on the grand scheme of things. Uh, but if they continue and are completely unchecked, they will cause damage. So, And they're annoying. Uh, and the other thing is that their presence is a surefire indicator of some type of overwatering. There's a little too much moisture somewhere in the space, in the medium. Um, now, yellow tr sticky traps are definitely good and will control the problem somewhat because uh, the adults will just be drawn to that yellow uh, trap and, and stick to it. Uh, they're also a great way to determine if you have fungus gnats. Uh, so I leave them up, you know, or I recommend leaving them up uh, even if you don't see any, because that'll be one of the first places you'll see them. Um, they're attracted to that yellow color, um, and they get stuck at the trap on the trap. So, but that's a determination that they've already, you know, matured to that level. Um, to get rid of the larvae, uh, you actually need to drench your soil with a biological larvicide. Um, there's a brand called Natural, uh, which is f um, pretty. Uh, somewhat or on the organic side. If you do that twice weekly for a month in conjunction with uh, basically just spraying safer soap or something like that uh, on the soil mix uh, surface, on the surface of your medium, you said cocoa. Uh, and their life cycle is pretty short. It's like eight days. You should get rid of them pretty shortly. Uh, another thing to do because overwatering is, is one of the reasons they get comfortable uh, is to not water from above, but actually bottom feed your plants. Use some type of a wick system, uh, self-watering containers that have a reservoir underneath that the plant roots can pull um, that nutrient solution up to the roots rather than um, pouring it down onto the roots. That gives them less uh, real estate in that top inch or two of soil uh, that stays moist but doesn't have really roots to, to absorb out the moisture. Uh, and that's where they lay their eggs, and, and that's where the problems arise. So hopefully that helps. All right, very good. We hope that helps you out there. Dabs are us420. Uh, let's go to Mario, who writes, Hello, guys. I hope you're doing well. My question is about flowering times. I grew some headband clones and forgot to check trichomes until day 56. I saw about 10% brown, so I did a quick mini flush and chopped soon thereafter. Fast forward to the next run, it's day 39 and one clone is already over 50% brown trichomes and the other clone is 100% milky cloudy. How is such a thing possible? What did I do wrong? Also, how would you go about doing a proper flush in a situation where the flowering time is unknown or not very specific? Thanks for all the work you guys do. So yeah, that's interesting. What, what would you say to Mario? Yeah, you know, that is interesting. A lot of times you hear that uh, the plant hasn't matured in time uh, or in the proper amount of time because there's been setbacks along the way, but very rarely um, do you hear of plants maturing too quickly. Um, but different things can cause that. I know uh, sometimes in a perpetual grow, uh, plants that are exposed to plants that are uh, older than them or even plants that have been harvested and are chopped and um, giving off certain... Uh, oxins and hormones and things into the air uh, freaks those plants out and makes them uh, mature quicker or ripen uh, faster than they're supposed to. 
Uh, I'm not sure if these are indoor plants or outdoor plants, but outdoors this could happen also based just on weather. Like uh, if a plant freaks out and it thinks it's going to die, it, it tries to mature quicker. Um, just like it'll hermaphrodite and create seeds, uh, it'll basically try to get to that process faster because it's freaked out. It thinks that the frost is coming and it's going to die before it gets a chance to make seeds and reproduce for the next year. Um, so it seems to me uh, that you've had some type of an environmental issue that has caused the plant to mature too quickly. Um, the only other thing is maybe it's just a different phenotype that matures faster. I've never heard really of too many things maturing in 39 days and being completely uh, milky, cloudy, or 50% uh, brown, which I'm assuming is like an amber uh, trichome. So something has happened, I think, along the way environmentally that is um, either the uh, uh, very cold uh, nights, very cold days, possibly uh, shorter uh amount of light rather than you know 12 hours of light per day nine hours of light per day something to freak the plant out and make it think it has to mature quicker so that's uh that's what i would say is happening there i would say if you can control the environment a, a bit better you'll see that um the plant should be maturing basically from about day 50 to about day 75 is almost every hybrid on the market kind of finishes in that time uh, it's unusual to see something earlier or later than that. So as long as those are regular seeds, if they're feminized or autos, that could also be an issue as well. So um, if you hear the mess, you know, if you hear this and, and you can clarify uh, whether those are indoors and outdoors, uh, yeah, you know, keep us posted. But I think it's environmental. OK, yes. Thank you, Mario. So do uh, do keep us posted on that. And we have time for uh, one more question. So let's go to Chadwick. Chadwick. Um, he writes, hey, Dan, I live in the U.S. and I wanted to know if it's illegal to order seeds from online and also if it's a bad idea. Hmm. Huh. Well, <laughs> interesting question. You know, I'm not a lawyer. I do think it is illegal. Uh technically to order seeds online uh as far as it being a bad idea it's a bad idea to order them to your grow room uh or to the home in which you have a grow tent or anything along those lines um the truth is ordering seeds through the internet is you know it's a murky kind of gray area situation as far as uh what's going to happen with your transaction uh if you send money and no seeds arrive there's really not much you can do besides complain uh, on the internet and there's a lot of sort of fly-by-night companies out there uh, you may not get any seeds you may not get the seeds you want who knows so my advice is do some research make sure that you have a legitimate seed retailer or reseller um, or you know there's a lot out there we have a sponsor rocket seeds that's been around for years uh, there are many other ones of course uh, the important thing is like how long they've been around uh, how's their customer service? Um, complaints, you know, every company is going to have complaints. There's always going to be disgruntled customers for one reason or, an, or, an, or another. But if it's a volley of complaints, um, that's important too. Uh, back in the day, I put together a Seed Bank Hall of Fame for High Times, which, uh, you know, I'm sure is still up on their website. And that has a lot of companies that are uh, proven, you know, they've proven their worth with breeding. Uh, winning cannabis cups, uh, good customer service is really important. Some of these companies uh, will replace seeds if they don't come in the mail and they have certain deals that you can get. And 
all kinds of stuff. Uh, again, don't order seeds to the same address where you're growing, particularly if it's an illegal uh, state or country. Um, you can always find a friend or a sympathetic relative that might take the risk of just having the beans uh, sent in the mail. Uh, and then the other thing is follow the company's ordering advice and information to a T. So whatever they say, do it exactly as they say, because each company has different uh, procedures. And that's going to ensure that you get the seeds you want uh, for the price you agreed upon and all of that. And then, uh, you know, don't store the seeds away for 10 or 15 years either. You know, pop the seeds, get them going, uh, keep mother plants and uh, and share the genetics. And, and if it's great, you know, share it. Keep the keep that stuff alive because nothing's better than popping seeds and finding something amazing and new. All right. Thank you, Chadwick. That's uh, that's all the time we have. But uh, join us over on Patreon for some bonus Q&A. We're going to be taking questions on clones and also how to get involved as a cannabis activist. Uh, thank you to everyone who wrote in this week. If you have a question that you would like answered on the show, get in touch with us. Uh, you could email us. That is, once again, info at growbudyourself.com. Uh, what do you say? We take a little break. Come back and wrap this up. Let's do it. Hey guys, I want to tell you about one of our favorite sponsors, Excelsior Extracts. Outcast and TOH from Excelsior are incredible people, incredible growers, and they make an amazing product. Their THC-infused pain rub is made by patients for patients, and it provides powerful relief from pain. This product was developed to treat Outcast's chronic pain, and trust me, this is a super potent topical that really works. You can find out more about Excelsior on Instagram at Excelsior Extracts. That's E-X-C-E-L-S-I-O-R-E-X-T-R-A-C-T-S. DM them there to learn more about their amazing pain rub. And don't forget to tell them that Grow Bud Yourself sent you. All right, welcome back, and it is the wrap. I want to thank Andrew D'Angelo uh, for the interview. Thank you so much for being on the show, and uh, definitely want to thank our sponsors, Organic Rev Growth Stimulant. Remember to get your free bottle. Uh, just pay for the shipping and handling at organicrev.com slash GBY10. Uh, Excelsior Extracts, check them out on Instagram, the THC-infused pain relief rub. Sweetleaf Nutrients, use the code DANKO15 for 15% off. Uh, Rocket Seeds, GBY10 gets you 10% off at rocketseeds.com. And give all these guys a follow on social media as well and tell them we sent you. Um, Sweetleaf also has extras you can get uh, if you sign up for our Patreon page. So it's patreon.com slash dannydanko, and you can sign up there. Uh, for 20% off or even 25% off, I think, at some point, as well as uh, free nutrients and uh, some gear as well, uh, T-shirts and beanies and things. So give us a follow on there. Uh, we we would be psyched. Uh, when we reach 100 people on our Patreon, we're going to do some giveaways, including the uh, Banana Brothers uh, cone rolling machine that I have sitting right here uh, next to me waiting to be shipped out to one of our our new Patreon supporters or past Patreon supporters, anyone that's on there. So thanks you guys for the support. Thanks to DJ Jacques and Winstrong. Thanks to my uh, producer and co-host Mike G. Um, yeah. Follow us on YouTube. 
uh, follow us on Patreon, subscribe. Uh, we have merch. If anybody's interested, it's out there uh, on Spotify or somewhere. Is it Spotify? No, Spotify is where you no, listen that's, to us. That's on, uh, it's something like, oh, Shopify. That's Shopify. What it is. <laughs> yeah, Shopify. So, yeah, thanks, you guys, for listening. Uh, episode number 72. Let's put it in the books.